Hello, I'm Michael Wimmer, and welcome to the Pros and Pros Podcast, a podcast devoted to the exploration of great sports writing. This February, in honor of Black History Month, Pros and Pros will be focusing on stories about the struggle for black equality, along with books by black sports writers. Today, I interviewed Howard Bryant, a senior writer for ESPN.com and ESPN the Magazine, who is also the sports correspondent for NPR's Weekend Edition. Bryant joined me to discuss his latest book, The Heritage which examines both the ways that sports and politics are inextricably intertwined and the history of activism by black athletes throughout the years. The Heritage is a tremendously insightful book and an essential read for anyone trying to make sense of both why black athletes feel the need to protest and why athlete activism has made such a comeback in recent years. Without further ado, here's Howard Bryant. Today I have with me Howard Bryant, the author of the new book, The Heritage, which explores the history of black activism by athletes throughout the years. Howard, it's great to have you with me today. It's good to be here. Thank you. Uh, First off, what led you to want to write a book looking at the history of activism by black athletes? Well, I think that it all started, well, one, it's been a topic that I've been writing about for about the last 20 years. And I think also where we were in this moment of time in terms of what was happening in the country and the relationship between African-American communities and the police, what was happening with the militarization of sports, what was happening with, with athletes getting more involved in some of these situations, whether it be the Trayvon Martin situation or whether it be Eric Garner or whether it be Michael Brown in Ferguson. And so it was very clear that things were happening at a speed in which it was difficult to ignore. Mm-hmm. And so taking a step back, I started to realize that, uh, you know, I started to realize that you had to, at some point, try to put this in some sort of context. Mm-hmm. Uh, can you say a little bit about the title? What What do you see as the heritage? Well, I think what it is, is that it was a term that continued to be used when I was talking to athletes about this legacy, this sort of inheritance that black players had over the past 60 or 70 years going back from Jackie Robinson to well, Paul Robeson to Robinson going forward to Muhammad Ali and the number of players who talked about this relationship that they had to, uh, to speak on social issues on behalf of black communities, that they would call that their heritage. And it just was a term that so many players I had spoken with and used. It's really informal. It was nothing that was something that was codified by any of them. It just kept returning in, in, in my interviews. And so I began to recognize that this was something that was tying these players together. And I went with the title. Mm-hmm. And, and you choose to begin your narrative by focusing on Paul, Paul Robeson, a, a name that's likely not that familiar to many modern readers. Who, who exactly was he? And why did you choose to focus on, on him at the start of your story? Well, I think the reason is because I think he was the original in terms of for all the things that we talk about today with Colin Kaepernick, or if we talk about Tommy Smith and John Carlos with the 1968 Olympics and the repercussions that these athletes and these entertainers felt by advocating for African Americans. Paul Robeson predated all of them. Paul Robeson was a legendary athlete at Rutgers. He was a legendary football player, legendary singer activist and was very very clear in his convictions in those years in the in the teens when he was at college and in the in the 20s 
and in, in, in the 1930s that it was important for him to speak out in terms of the mistreatment that African-Americans were facing in the country and some of the things that, that the issues that, that they needed. And I think that one of the things that I found very interesting about Paul Robeson was that he was one of the first people to advocate for universal health care for all Americans. Hmm. He was very, very clear in his convictions and used his platform in ways that people relate to the modern player today. So I think when you're doing a history of these individuals, you really do want to try to go back to the root. And for me, Robeson was a guy who embodied everything that we're talking about today. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And, and you see the 60s as sort of like this, this peak for um, athlete activism. What do you think it was about that era that, that uh, drew out so many athletes and enabled them to speak so loudly? Well, I think that I think that one you had a very special moment in time. Mm-hmm. I think the first thing that you had was massive, massive change taking place in the country over various areas. You had you had sports growing as an as a, a nascent industry. You had civil rights movement that was coming out of World War II. You had groups of of people, African Americans especially, who wanted a, a bigger piece of their citizenship, one their citizenship to be realized. You had people coming of age in the 1960s who were born in the, you know, during the war years and recognizing that there was a contract mm-hmm. that had been signed between American citizens and the world in terms of fighting for freedom. And at some point, the hypocrisy or the, the contrast of fighting and giving your life for freedom and having these ideals that we talk about, having them have meaning, and then to be one of those people who did fight and to come home and have no rights mm-hmm. and to be segregated and to be you know, living, you know, living under second-class citizenship. You had, a, you had that generation come of age the children of that generation come of age and recognize that it, they didn't want it to be like that for themselves. And especially as, as some of these more prominent people became uh, famous, especially when you're looking at athletes or actors or people who are becoming more and more prominent in the culture, they had an opportunity. They had a platform that people were going to listen to them and they used it. Mm-hmm. And of course, after the 60s, you write about the heritage largely disappearing for several decades. Why do you think it vanished like that? Well, I think that you look at ideas and you wonder, especially from a standpoint of protest, what is our objective? And in so many instances, the objective for segregation uh, and fighting segregation was to no longer have segregation, was integration. Mm-hmm. It was to no longer have Jim Crow. It was to be able to have sort of the physical opportunities that other citizens had. And I think once you began going through the 1960s and you began to see some victories, you began to see the end of, of Jim Crow segregation and the end of Jim Crow laws. I think a lot of people thought the fight was over. Okay, I can move to whatever neighborhood I want to move to, and nobody's going to petition, or at least they may petition, but at least there's no law against it anymore. And there may be other extra legal ways to keep us out of the neighborhood, but at least 
it's not against the law for me to go drink at this water fountain or to play against white players or to play against black players or to, you know, or to stay in a certain hotel. And once, you know, once those customs ended, I think a lot of people, black, white, Americans alike, believed that the fight was over. Mm-hmm. And also in, from a sports standpoint, you also saw players starting to make more money. And as they began to make more money, you could see them become a bit more distant. O.J. Simpson, I think, to me, is the first wave in this break from this tradition because he was the player who was the first real player to benefit from this new time. Mm -hmm. Even the great players of the 1950s and 60s, the great black players, when, when they would have successes, they, that success did not always translate into money. Whereas OJ Simpson certainly was somebody who benefited from, from this with commercials and cars and, and bigger contracts and all of that. And so when those types of perks are coming your way, when you're starting to receive the, 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 the type of, of uh, attention and the type of money that those players began receiving in the 1970s, then I think people began, the problem, began to think that the problems were over. Mm-hmm. What, what was it that allowed O.J. Simpson and then later Michael Jordan and Tiger Woods, who you also write about, to, to become such public figures and, and sort of transcend race, as you, as you call it? Well, I don't say they transcend race. I say that the idea was that they transcended race, and I completely disagree with that notion because I don't believe that race is something that needs to be transcended. Um, but that was, the, that was the narrative. The narrative was, was that these great players transcended race. Essentially, it's their talent. It's the fact that these guys were so damn good at what they could do. It it separated them. It bought into this American notion of meritocracy, that if you're talented and if my score is higher than your score, then I win. And that's something that's very seductive to Americans, especially, especially Americans who have a legacy, as we do, of unfair treatment of segregation for no reason other than the color of a person's skin or that the fact that they were a woman or Native American or whatever. And so to have athletics balance the score, you can hear it in our language. We talk about it all the time. We want to level the playing field or moving the goalposts. We have all of these sports analogies that we use to try to speak to a meritocracy. And so to see somebody like O.J. Simpson or Michael Jordan, or like Tiger Woods. One, their talent and their charisma is undeniable. Everyone wanted to be like them. Mm-hmm. Two, you began to see also the fruits of their labor. You could see the riches that were coming their way. You could see the types of benefits that they were getting. And then on top of that also, they themselves began to recognize too that they certainly did not want to jeopardize what they had by being political and by by essentially turning off the mainstream because it could under, it could undermine their own bottom line. And also I think the most important thing of all of this too, is that I think it also depends on your personality. People always talk about the great Muhammad Ali's and the great Jackie Robinson and who's going to be the next John Carlos or the next Tommy Smith or the next Jackie Robinson. And it's very, very hard to do because those individuals were a very, very special character. Mm-hmm. And I think when you look at someone like Michael or if you look at someone like Tiger or, or O.J. Simpson, they were more ballplayer slash businessmen slash capitalists than they were 
activists. Mm-hmm. Not for everybody. And jumping ahead a few decades, you, you write about Alan Iverson helping bring athletes back to the people and call him a reconnective bridge to the heritage, despite the fact that he didn't really take any political stances. H- how was he able to do that? And what do you think he came to represent throughout his career? Well, I think process? what he represented was, yeah, I think what Alan represented was the individuality and the separation from this new template that OJ and Michael and Tiger created as black athlete as, as CEO. Uh, the black athlete had to wear the thousand dollar suit and you had to be connected to all of these corporations and you had to look the part of sort of legitimate businessman, whereas Alan Iverson was authentic and his authenticity resonated with with kids all over cities and all over towns across America, that he wasn't going to be that guy. He didn't want to be like Mike as the commercials used to, used to demand. He was somebody else. He said, I'm, I'm going to succeed in this game, whether it's on the court or whether it's off the court in terms of endorsements, and I'm going to succeed in it being myself. And the reason why I think that's significant is because it broke with the idea that you had to play some sort of part the Michael Jordan part, you had to be the corporate guy who, you know, had the corporate jet. I mean, Alan Iverson very well may have had a corporate jet, but he, you know, he didn't make his, per, you know, his persona did not revolve around being seen with all of these white CEOs mm-hmm. and playing golf with them and, and, and essentially trying to look the legitimate part as a businessman. He wasn't that guy. He was, as they, as as people would say about him, he was the realest dude. And so being able to do that, what Alan Iverson did to me was he opened up the opportunity for a different type of successful black player, a return to the old black player who may have well said, okay, I'm going to be political. I'm going to be, I'm going to advocate. I'm going to say different things. I'm not going to be afraid of my sponsors and say nothing or make you believe that I am somehow involved in the, you know, in the business class by, by wearing $1,500 suits and saying nothing. Because, mm-hmm. yeah, one thing that struck out to me as I, as I was reading about Iverson in your, in your book was how even though he didn't take explicit political stances, how it's still a political move to be that unapologetically black in a public sphere. Yeah, and, unap- and un- unapologetically authentic. This is who he was. Mm-hmm. And, and wasn't afraid to, because let's not forget that most of those players, when they come into the league, you've got all these different handlers and agents and marketing people and public relations people essentially telling you that this is how you have to act. And he wasn't going to do that. Mm-hmm. And, and that is huge. And that, that enabled so many other players to come in behind him, whether it was Michael Vick and he came in and wore his cornrows and did his own thing. Uh, the so many other players then came behind him and said that, look, I don't want to do that either. I'm going to be myself. And around the same time as Iverson's apex was uh, the terrorist attacks of September 11th, which you see as a major turning point in um, the sports world. Uh, I myself was 10 years old when it happened. So my sports watching life has been pretty much exclusively post 9-11. So the patriotic displays have sort of always been my reality. Um, but how how did they come to be so ingrained and then even come to be seen as apolitical despite upholding a particular view of the military and the police? Yeah, by by sheer volume, by the constant bombardment of their presence at sporting events, by their bombardment and their presence in commercials and 
in the in the public sphere, in the airport, everywhere you looked. And I think that it was the I, I do believe that this we have our generational moments. And I think that when my dad was a child, I mean his generational moment obviously was being born. You know, he was seven years old when World War II ended. So World War II is obviously his life was determined based on the uh, the culture, the post-war culture. For me as a kid growing up, the, the culture for us was the Cold War. The Cold War dominated everything, whether you're talking about the Olympics or TV or everything. We were afraid of the Russians, and the Russians were the bad guys. And that's how it was. It was the Soviet Union and the United States, the two superpowers. But for your generation, it's 9-11. For your generation, you know, you live in the era of terrorism. You live in the global war of terror. And what that's done is that has been a very, very clever and very cynical and sinister in a lot of ways, in my mind, marketing campaign to expand the power and the reach and the presence of authority and authoritarian figures. And so what you've had there ever since, I mean, there's no better advertising place than a stadium full of 70,000 people cheering. It's a, it's a perfect, when you walk into a sporting event, you've already ingrained yourself in an us versus them mentality, home and away, good guy, bad guy mentality. And so when you start bringing in police and veterans uh, in this sphere, then you have no, you, of course you want to cheer. And of course, anybody, I, I lived in New York City on 9-11 and I remember it very, very well. There was a feeling that we were, we were hurt. And so for this short period of time, sports became this place as, uh, where, where people wanted to heal. It became a healing location for a lot of people who wanted to come together. And I think that's been, that would be exploited very quickly over the next few years when all of a sudden it went from, from healing gesture to authoritarian gesture. How, how do you think that transition from healing to authoritarian took place? Well, it took place very simply. One, by making sure, I know you were young at the time, but you couldn't criticize anybody. You couldn't criticize anything. You couldn't criticize American foreign policy. You couldn't criticize whether or not it was the right move to attack Iraq and whether the strategies were right to go into Afghanistan. You couldn't criticize anything. And at the same time, you had a president, George W. Bush, who told everyone to go shopping and to keep spending, to keep the economy going. And that's the best way you can do your part. The best way you can do your part is to always pay attention to what your government is doing. Mm. And so you had a culture that was, over, that was being overwhelmed one, by the tragedy of 9-11 and the fear of looking like a traitor, of looking like you didn't care, of looking like you were somehow sympathetic to Al-Qaeda or Osama bin Laden or, or, or the rest of them. And you, you really were taking a big risk criticizing anything during those years, 2002, 2003, 2004. And by the time you start getting into the rest of the, the second half of that decade, the presence of military is ingrained. The presence of police is ingrained. And the police are a very important piece of this because obviously the officers that died in 9-11, that went into those towers that did their jobs and paid the ultimate price for doing their jobs, were clearly not to be forgotten. However, 
that didn't change the relationship, the longstanding relationships in black communities that had historical issues with police. Mm. So on the one hand, you had police becoming heroes, universal heroes and celebrated across the country in the eyes of the public. But those same, those same police districts in many ways were never heroic in the black community and were able then to deflect their behavior when it came to the black community. And so it was very, very difficult then to try and hold police accountable when they are now considered heroes. Mm-hmm. And that, that changed the relationship. It made, it made convictions almost impossible. Convictions were difficult before. And so as, and as you see, as we get into the end of the decade and into the, into the current decade, you begin to see now more and more and more uh, police shootings and police misconduct and these things taking place on video and dash cam videos and YouTube videos and everything else. And then wondering why it, be, it was so difficult to actually receive any sort of punishment. I think that hero culture had a lot to do with it, has had a lot to do with it. Mm-hmm. How did the police and the military sort of come to be conflated after 9-11? Well, I think 9-11 did it because you had, they, they worked in concert. You had obviously an international terrorist attack with domestic law enforcement on the scene. That's kind of what happened when something actually happens on your soil for once. One thing that Americans had not been used to is having attacks happen on American soil, foreign attacks. Domestic terrorism, sure, with Timothy McVeigh or the Unabomber and those things, yes. School shootings, those are domestic terrorism. But an international incident usually takes place on somebody else's soil. So obviously, on the one hand, you had the you had to ramp up the military because clearly after 9-11, there was going to be war. And then you also had to, you also had to acknowledge the sacrifice of the Port Authority and of the police and of the people who were in New York City. And then, of course, that expanded into all law enforcement. So at the same time, you had these two elements begin to merge over an international and domestic incident. The other thing that took place as well was the relationship that had traditionally been separate between local police departments and the military. Those relationships grew closer through different government programs that began to um, connect police and military, whether it's the, the trading and the selling of equipment, whether it was the uniforms, because you begin to look now and look at police around the, around the country and they're dressed as if they're soldiers. I've seen you know, police wearing army fatigues and wearing desert camo and stuff when, when they're local police officers. So they begin to mirror each other, not just in terms of attitude post 9-11, but also in dress and how they look and, and how they're acting. Mm-hmm. And, and when their more, jobs actually couldn't be any different. Mm-hmm. And, and one of the more interesting um, things you write in your book is about how patriotism and military service became co-opted as white ideals. H- how did that shift occur? Well, I think that shift occurred. I, I think sports had a lot to do with it because now you've got to confront. If you live in a culture that has decided that police and military are heroes 
and that the police and the military are essentially one and the same, then how do you square with the narrative that you have black communities that say police aren't heroic? So you start looking at the statistics and you start looking at the people and you start looking at the images and you see the people who are fighting the police are black and the people who are supporting the police are white and the people who are supporting the police, regardless, regardless of their conduct, whether it's the police unions or juries and such that simply do not want to convict police officers. Now you start looking at those optics and they're in direct opposition with one another. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, and especially when you look at sports, when you see there, there aren't many white professional athletes out there talking about police misconduct. It's all black players. So just by looking at the images that are in front of us, it's been stratified along racial lines. Moving ahead to the, to the recent wave of athlete activism, there, there have been innumerable murders of black persons by police over the years, and yet none of them really sparked much national outrage until the murders of Trayvon Martin and Michael Brown in 2012 and 2014. What was it about these events that galvanized athletes in a way that previous killings in the eighties and nineties didn't? Yeah. Well, I would be careful with the terminology because they're killings and not murders. Murder is a legal term. And those guys were never convicted of murder. Um, Even though, even though they may look like murders, um, they were killings. And so I, I think part of the reason is obviously technology. The fact that you have, everyone's got a video camera on their phone and people can look at these videos for themselves and they don't just look at the video now, now they share the video and they spread the video. So the power of social media to spread these viral videos is an incredibly, has been an incredibly powerful tool in terms of advocacy and activism. And so you're also having something else take place in sports that, you know, that's very, very special. And that is most times when, when entertainers get involved outside of their industries, people tell them to shut up and play or shut up and act or you're out of your league or whatever. But in this case, you really couldn't say that to players because these players are actually from a lot of the communities that have these difficult relationships with police, whether you're talking about Carmelo Anthony with in the Freddie Gray case in Baltimore, he's from that community. So you can't tell him that his position is illegitimate. He knows more about this than you do. Mm-hmm. And, and when you're talking about the, the, the media and everything, it's not like that they are, it's not Jane Fonda in, in Vietnam. It's, it's, it's the black player who's actually from a given community. It's actually, these, these, these people who are, have a, a personal relationship with, with the communities where these things have taken place. Mm-hmm. And so that gives them a legitimacy that a lot of other entertainers may not have had. And, and it makes it very difficult. Obviously, it didn't stop them, but it made it very difficult, at least for me, to say that these players weren't legitimate. And the mainstream media and the president of the United States and, all, and so many other detractors tried to say that they didn't have any claim to talk about these issues. But the fact of the matter is that they've got more of a claim to talk about it than most anybody. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And several athletes had spoken up against police brutality before Colin Kaepernick took a knee during the anthem in 2016. But what was it about him and his protest that made him the focus of so much more vitriol than other athletes who had spoken up? Well, it was the taking of the knee. I think that was the gesture that, 
that galvanized people against him at first. But I think that it was him, period. I think it was more, if Colin Kaepernick had raised his fist during the national anthem, it would have been the same thing. It was the fact that Colin Kaepernick really was the first athlete in a very long time to not try to be a peacemaker, to not try and work with local law enforcement and do ride-alongs and not go through his public relations machine and not do any of those things, but to be the person to indict. And if you remember, one of his first things that he said was, I'm not going to support people who are essentially, you know, stand by and watch people who are getting paid vacations for killing black people or something along those lines. And it was the paid vacation line that was, that, that was really strong. What he's really saying is, you're getting away with murder of my people. He's not saying, oh, we all have to come together and can't we get along and one day we'll all be free. He's not saying that. He's indicting the police specifically in a time of hero worship of the police. And that's very powerful. And the fact that he took a knee during the national anthem was a big deal. But if, like I said, if he had raised his fist because nobody else was raising their fists either, then that would have been a big deal. I don't think there's any gesture that he could have used outside of the national anthem that would have softened the blow. The fact that he protested while the national anthem was playing was his way of indicting the entire country. Mm-hmm. Do you think it would have been any different if he was an NBA player, or do you think the NFL has something to do with the backlash as well? Well, the NFL has something to do with the backlash simply because the NFL likes to liken itself and contrast itself and align itself with the military. So I think that had something to do with it, and it's the nation's most popular sport and all of that. However, think of it the other way. If Colin Kaepernick was a star NBA player who had raised his fist during the national anthem, Every game, that's him doing it 82 times. Mm-hmm. That would have caught, you know, that would have been newsworthy as well. And so, and let's not forget, people like to say, oh, well, you know, the NFL is a tough one and the NBA is better. David Stern came out and said that the other day. Let's mm-hmm. not forget that the NBA had also blackballed uh, both Craig Hodges and Mahmoud Abdul Rauf mm-hmm. when, you know, when they had protested in the 1990s. So it's not as though. Uh, it's not as though the NBA is somehow more virtuous than the NFL. It's just the fact that they had a, they were able to watch another sport, deal with it, and then react to that differently. Mm-hmm. For sure. And do you have any worries about the leagues themselves sort of co-opting the fight for justice for themselves and stifling freer expressions of advocacy that way? Sure, absolutely. I mean, I think that this is one of the things that that they that everyone needs to worry about in terms of the when corporations get involved and they start buying protests or when protests becomes profitable mm-hmm. the same as when patriotism becomes profitable that's one of the very interesting things that's taking place in the culture right now is you have you have one side the NFL fan side essentially profiting off of what they consider to be patriotism and the military with their camo uniforms and camo gear and military appreciation days and all of that stuff. And then on the other hand, you have a lot of people trying to profit off of protest, you know, with the cool gear and all the, 
you know, Pepsi with their protest commercials, the disastrous <laughs> ad they had going on. So neither patriotism nor protest should be for sale. And yet they are. And that's why I began to think about this book with the title of A Divided America. You've got people fighting for these images, while at the same time you have corporations in the middle of it trying to make money off of both. Mm-hmm. And, and why do you think that so few white athletes have been willing to stand behind their black teammates and offer support? Because they never have. I think that I think white players look at these issues the same way a lot of white Americans look at the issues. It's not their issue. They don't think that these issues affect them and they don't belong to them. And also, I think that so many white athletes as well don't need the grief that they're going to get from their communities. They are connected in so many ways. When you think of the birth of the American middle class, it, especially the American blue collar middle class came from unions and police and fire. So they've got relatives who are the ones being indicted by the Colin Kaepernick's of the world. So you have a very different relationship with these, with these elements that, that are the center of the protest. It's very, very difficult if your dad was a, if your dad was a police officer and so was your grandfather to protest the police. You've got a, you know, you've got a, and that, that applies to black people as well who have had family in law enforcement or who do have family in law enforcement. Uh, as for the white players, there's, there's never been, especially from a white male athlete standpoint, there's never been a legacy or a heritage of them ever having any real solidarity with black players on these issues. They don't think it's theirs. Hmm. One thing that surprised well, me. Meanwhile, I would say, excuse me, the, meanwhile, I would say that the women, however, have done a much, much better job. You saw Megan Rapinoe out there and the Minnesota Lynx players, and you've seen you've seen women be much more in solidarity with each other than, than the men have on this issue and, and the female team sports. And so I think the men could actually learn something from the women on this. Mm-hmm. And we, we touched upon this a little bit earlier, but uh, the, you talk about the distinction between uh, a peacemaker and someone who, who indicts more, um, which means you were a little more tempered than I would have expected in praising LeBron James's activism. Could you say a little bit more about the distinction between uh, a peacemaker and uh, a Kaepernick-type figure? And also, do you believe yeah. that, like, in, mm-hmm. in, the, in the instance of James, do you think that's more revealing of his personality or maybe of an intentional hedging on his part? Well, I think it's certainly hedging, and there's no doubt about that. And I, I give him credit for the things that he's done. But as I also said in the book, let's, let's also not forget that when Tamir Rice was killed in his city, he was very... Um, timid on that issue. He had just returned to the Cavaliers, and I think that it was curious that he was not more in support uh, of the Rice, of Tamir Rice's family. Um, but he was, you know, he said some things, he just wasn't nearly as vociferous as, as I thought he could have been. I, I think the biggest difference, once again, is, and you see it with the players, how far are you willing to go? And I think that the players, the peacemakers recognize in today's multi-billion dollar corporate professional sports world, that the public believes they belong to them. The public sees them as part of their universe. And the public is not necessarily prepared. And I don't think the player is prepared to make that separation. Whereas someone like Kaepernick is not a peacemaker. It's like, I really don't need the cooperation of my league for me to say what I need to say. 
And I think that these players are so corporate bound. I think these players are so connected and they believe, especially the NBA players, they believe in partnership. They believe that the league belongs to them. They believe that, believe that the league, that they are at one with the league, even though they are not owners and they still have a labor management relationship. They believe that there was room for negotiation as there usually is with the powers that be. Mm-hmm. And so because of that, the players took a safer road out. I'm not sure that the players were nearly as effective as we've given them credit for. I think when you start to look now and step back and you look at actual protests, I think the players were simply following what was taking place in the street. I think the average, and whether you're looking at the Parkland kids doing their thing with the March for Our Lives, or whether you're looking at the blocking of traffic in Los Angeles or Oakland or any any place where you've had some you've had some sort of police or racial unrest, the players have actually been timid compared to the public. Mm-hmm. But because they're the celebrities and we give them so much credit, and because generations of them previously had done absolutely nothing, they get more credit for doing less than most people would. Mm-hmm. Of course, we're speaking now under the context of a Donald Trump presidency which has prompted many players along with a few coaches to to speak out in ways they may not have otherwise. Do you think this trend will continue after his presidency ends or do you think the proverbial floodgates will close then as so much of the speaking out now focuses on him in particular? Well, I think we'll see. We'll see what the players are made of. We'll see what the people are made of. We'll see who actually, uh, who actually stands up. Are you standing up for your values or are you standing up for your for values or are you standing up simply for yourself? And so I think one of the things, one of the biggest mistakes that we've made as a, as a culture is we make it seem as though Donald Trump is responsible for everything when he's actually not. Donald Trump is the beneficiary of all the things that have been going on previously. <laughs> and so many other people now get to look like statesmen when they were, if they had created the foundation for Donald Trump in the first place. Mm-hmm. So uh, I, I think that it'll be very interesting to see how the players respond and how the activists respond, how the public responds when he's no longer in office. Do they all think that, that we're all good? I mean, we weren't good before. Donald Trump wasn't president when Trayvon Martin was killed. He wasn't president when Eric Garner was killed. He wasn't president when Amadou Diallo was killed. Uh, so it's not as though he's responsible for everything. He wasn't president during 9-11. So for all of these different things, it's convenient to make it seem like he's the problem. He's just a symptom. <laughs> and to wrap up, I would like to ask you a few questions I'd like to ask every guest. Um, first off, what are you currently reading at the moment? What books am I reading? Yeah, what are you currently reading? Well, I read a lot of books. I'm one of those people who reads four or five books at once. I don't, I'm not one of those people who reads one book at a time. I'm reading, uh, boy, for, for nonfiction. I'm currently reading uh, Aaron uh, Dottie Roy's Capitalism, A Ghost Story. I was reading Naomi Klein's No Is Not Enough. Uh, I was reading three of Rebecca Solnit's books. I was reading Hope in the Dark, Call Them By Their Names, and, um, um, and um, a Field Guide for Getting Lost. Uh, I'm also currently, I'm also currently, I mean, I read a lot. I'm currently reading a trajectory by Richard Russo for fiction. And, um, 
and and I think that's it. I don't think I'm reading anything. I finished. I reread uh, Fast Food Nation, Eric Schlosser's classic. Mm-hmm. So I think that's sort of where I'm at right now. I don't. I hope I'm not slighting anybody, but I think. I think that's what I'm reading right now. <laughs> yeah, I think I've got six books spread throughout my apartment that I'm in the middle of right now as well. So I get it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And some people do it differently. Some people like to read one book at a time, but I, I find myself reading a bunch of different books all at once. Mm-hmm. And, and if you could recommend any book to everyone listening today, what would it be? Um, let's see. That's a great question. Um, obviously, of anything that I'm reading right now, I think Capitalism, A Ghost Story has been a great, it's a great book. It's been fantastic. I think that I am a James Baldwin essay fan, so I love that. So I, I would recommend James Baldwin, The Price of the Ticket, if you can find it, Collective Nonfiction, 1948 to 1985. That is a fantastic book. Mm-hmm. Uh, if, you're a, if you like, you know, if you're a Boston and school desegregation person, one of the best books I've ever read was Common Ground, uh, which is written by J. Anthony Lucas about all of the the issues in school desegregation in Boston, tracks three families and how they all dealt with what took place during those years. It's phenomenal. I still think it's the best book written on Boston. So I have a lot of recommendations. If you are a Westerns fan and like, and if you like, uh, if you like, Fiction, I can never recommend too much Larry McMurtry's Lonesome Dove. It's my favorite. Mm-hmm. And, and what is your earliest sports memory? My earliest sports memory is probably 1974, and I was five years old, watching the Boston Bruins lose the Stanley Cup to the Philadelphia Flyers, game six. And what's the first thing that you remember writing? Uh, I don't know. Hmm. I can't. I, the first thing I remember writing? Mm-hmm. I have no idea. I have no idea. Um, <laughs> none. I mean, there's, I, can't, I, I cannot point to one thing that I remember as this was when I really started writing. Mm-hmm. Fair enough. I just, I've, been doing it, I've been doing it so long, I just don't remember. Mm-hmm. And if you could give your younger writing self any piece of advice, what would it be? Um, it would be to read the Bible more. Uh, it would be to, it would be to have a better foundation of where a lot of allegories come from. If you read, the the more you read, whether it's English lit or whether you read the Bible or you read some, uh, a lot of the foundational stories, uh, and a lot of the, a lot of what we talk about today comes from those old stories. I was not an English lit major. I was a journalism major. So when you're studying to, if you think about wanting to write fiction and all of those different things, I just didn't have the background or the foundation for that. I wish I had, because I think I might have been able to, to do a little different types of storytelling. Um, but in terms of being up on my Shakespeare and being up on, on those types of things, I really, really was deficient in that. So I think I would, I would study more. I guess that would be the, uh, the advice I would give myself. Gotcha. Howard, I want to thank you so much for appearing on Pros and Pros. I had a blast talking to you. Uh, and I hope you feel the same way. <laughs> no, it's been fun. It's been my pleasure. 
Thank you for listening to the Pros and Pros podcast. Stay tuned for many more exciting guests in the near future, including NBA champion Craig Hodges and gold medal winning sprinter Wyoming Tyus. In the interim, please subscribe and leave a positive review if you've enjoyed the show. Also, you can follow us on both Twitter and Instagram at Pros and Pros. I'm Michael Wimmer. Happy reading, everyone.